0: Okay, so we are uh, kind of coming down to the end of Genesis chapter 3, and as I indicated last week, I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about uh, really the broader doctrinal subject of original sin, um, and, and, to, and by way of introduction to that, that subject, as you think about what we've discussed up to this point from Genesis chapter 3... And just think about the, the way that it begins with the dialogue between the serpent and Eve and that whole interchange and process of temptation and, and then the partaking of the fruit by Eve and Adam and then the subsequent uh, curse that was leveled against the serpent and Eve and Adam. You look at the, the totality of Genesis chapter 3. Um, what would you say... When you consider the entrance of sin into human history, um, what would you say is a root cause, if not the root cause, or maybe the driving impulse that led to this sinful act of disobedience, direct disobedience of the one command that God gave them? What would you say might be at the root, or that root driving impulse? When you think about the, narrative, the the flow of the, the the flow of the dialogue between the serpent and Eve and just all of that played out there doubting god's word okay okay someone else said something else pride that's the one i was looking for and i think all of them are are appropriate but when you think about what the appeal of the serpent was to Eve it was this appeal that you will you will be wise, that you will be like God. And when you think about the source of that temptation, and you think about the description in Scripture of Satan's actual fall, what led to his demise, You know, it begins with Satan thinking he will be like God. So if we just, if we just assume that that is certainly, and that's also a biblical principle that you see over and over again, think about this issue of pride. I understand, but, but, but there was an appeal to being equivalent with God. So what, what led to the sinful act was, was pride. I and mean, that's, that's what led to it. So we can talk about that later if you'd like, but I'd like to move on. In order to have a side of obedience, you have to have a side of disobedience. There has to be a choice in there somewhere. Yes, yeah, so let me, let me move on. I want to get going with the, with the study. So listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride. Another example of this issue of the root of pride, in an article by a Presbyterian pastor entitled Pride, the Root of All Sin, he says this, Agreeing with Augustine in the epic Paradise Lost, Milton identified pride as the root cause of Satan's rebellion. Pride, for Thomas Aquinas, was the cause of every sin. G.K. Chesterton said, If I had only one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. T.S. Eliot agreed, Most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. And it's not just Christian pastors and theologians who have addressed this subtle centrality of pride. The brilliant Rapscallion Mark Twain famously wrote, Good breeding consists of concealing how much we think of ourselves and how little we think of other persons. So when you think about 1 Peter chapter 5, which says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Um, at the core of opposition to God is pride. God opposes the proud. And so a right understanding of sin and an understanding that, that, that excuse me, a right understanding of sin has a pride-crushing effect. um, And it has a God-exalting effect, if we understand it rightly. On the contrary, an erroneous view of sin has a pride-expanding effect and a God-diminishing effect or consequence. And so an understanding, a right understanding of sin and... Really, you could talk about a right understanding of the effects of sin as it entered into humanity and how it affects us now is of paramount importance. And we talked about this several weeks ago, how uh, understanding Genesis chapter 3, just like understanding Genesis chapter 1 and 2, is so foundational to just a comprehensive worldview. Well, it's no different than having a correct biblical understanding of sin and the nature of sin and its effect. And so, when we think about this, and I, we, we've talked about this at length, but when, we, when you look at history and you, and you think about how uh, sort of theological thought unfolded throughout history, you could essentially um, place the, the major divergent views on sin, or original sin, if, you will, if we'll call it, in either the Augustinian camp or the Pelagian camp. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, from 396 to 430, he was one of the Latin fathers of the church, he was one of the doctors of the early church, and perhaps the most significant Christian thinker after Paul, some would say. So a, a major influence on Christian doctrine and Christian thought is, uh, is Augustine. Counter to Augustine would be Pelagius. And Pelagius was a British monk, he was ultimately condemned at the Council of Carthage in 418 AD and again at the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD for his views on sin and free will. But, but the, the major categories, and again, I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes. We're not going to we're not gonna be able to take time to, to break all this down in, in minute detail. But the major sort of conflict, particularly in the early centuries of the church, would fall under the Augustinian view of original sin or the Pelagian view of original sin, and then there's offshoots of that as you continue on through history. Um, R.C. Sproul says this about the beginning of this what's become known as the Pelagian controversy because it became a very uh, source of contention in the church, so much so that they had to have councils to condemn the doctrine uh, on two different occasions. Separated by only uh, half a dozen years or, so, or a dozen or so years, but R.C. Sproul said this about it. He said, "Grant, this is a quote from Augustine. Grant what thou commandest, and command what thou dost desire." This passage from the pen of Saint Augustine of Hippo was the teaching of the great theologian that provoked one of the most important controversies in the history of the church, and one that was roused to fury in the early years of the fifth century. The provocation of this prayer stimulated a British monk by the name of Pelagius to react strenuously against its contents. When Pelagius came to Rome sometime in the first decade of the 5th century, he was appalled by the moral laxity he observed among professing Christians and even amongst the the clergy. Now here's the key. He attributed much of this malaise to the implications of the teaching of St. Augustine, namely, that righteousness could only be achieved by Christians with the special help of divine grace. Let me say that again. Pelagius attributed much of this malaise, much of this moral laxity, this moral lapse amongst professing Christians and even amongst the clergy. He attributed this to a particular teaching of Augustine, and namely that a teaching was that righteousness could only be achieved by Christians with the special help Of divine grace. Now, the key issue for Augustine, according to Sproul in his article on this, in this controversy, was the issue of fallen man's moral ability, or the lack thereof. Augustine argued that prior to the fall, Adam and Eve enjoyed a free will as well as moral liberty. The will is the faculty by which choices are made. Liberty refers to the the ability to use the faculty to embrace the things of God. After the fall, Augustine said the will or the faculty of choosing remained intact. That is, human beings are still free in the sense that they can choose what they want to choose. However, their choices are deeply influenced by the bondage of sin that holds them in a corrupt state. As a result of that bondage to sin, the original liberty that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall was lost. Yeah, so it does center around this, this, uh, this concept of free will. Okay, So Augustine would argue that man's ability to choose remained intact after the fall, but his liberty, or the sin nature, The corruption of sin in him would compel him to choose sin. Okay? That's the nature of Augustine's argument. And so Pelagius was all up in arms about that because he made a conclusion that that kind of belief, that kind of belief system, that kind of doctrinal predisposition would naturally lead to people being lax in their moral convictions. And you didn't think they were? Pardon me? He didn't think they were lax in their moral convictions? Pla- but we are by nature. Yeah, but he was he was basically at that time in history, he was basically outraged by uh, the the almost the the lack of the, the clergy itself was corrupt. And so he, it was really probably more of a uh, you know a, 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 I don't know a disgust at the complete moral breakdown of the church from the top down. Um, and so his, his thought was, according to, to particularly this article, was that um, if, if man, basically the essence of the argument is, that if man uh, d- believes that original sin, the sin of Adam, that passes on to him, passes on to Adam's progeny, and therefore passes on to us, holds us into a corrupt state of bondage to that sin so that we cannot, on our own, choose the good, we must have special grace to enable us to do that, then that is a diminishment of moral motivation. That's the argument. So it really is, and you can tell by the way I'm trying to articulate it, you can see that it is an argument from the outside in. Right? You observe some cultural reality or some, some manifestation of of behavior, of external behavior that is morally offensive, or some some trend in that way, and you start to think of ways from the outside in to correct it. As opposed to recognizing that any outside in remedy is never going to deal with the core issue. Okay? So Augustine would be arguing that it's got to be from the inside out. The, the, the issue is not something that's just, you know, you've got to believe that you can do the good. You've got to believe that you're capable of doing the good. So let me continue on, and I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of elaborate a little bit more on this, especially the Pelagian view here. Um, let me give you a few more bullet points on, on really how that translated into some practical things. So, Pelagian would say that because God commands man to do that which is good, man must have the ability to do it. Okay, That's at the basis of his argument. He goes on to say that man's will is absolutely free and absolutely independent, able to choose for or against that which is good. He goes on further to argue that sin consists only in the separate acts of the will. There is no such thing as a sinful nature. So in other words, you and I show up on the planet, we're born on the planet, and what makes us sinners, or what makes us sinful, is the fact that we commit sins. That would be the argument. Okay? So there's no internal nature that we're born into, but it's the fact that we commit sins by virtue of habit, and really by virtue of example. The example of Adam passed down generation after generation after generation, and we model that example, and so therefore, once we begin to commit sins and model that example, we are then sinners. Okay? So, but there's no, there's, no, there's no sinful nature that is passed on from Adam. Adam was created in a state of moral neutrality, plagiarism would argue, neither good nor bad, he chose the course of evil and became sinful. He, say, he would say that there's no such thing as original sin, that Adam was the first sinner, but in no way did sin, did his sin pass on to his descendants. Now, he would, he would agree with the universality of sin. He would acknowledge that sin is a universal issue, but it's a result of imitation and habit of sinning that is gradually formed, as I just said. It's a, it's a, it's a habit and an imitation problem not an innate problem that's passed on from Adam. He must not have had children, because you sure don't have to teach kids to sin. That that point that exact point was made in some of the reading I, I you know there was a, it was a it was a really simple but profound observation that parents do not spend time and energy and effort training kids to sin. Let me, let me teach you how to sin so you'll be able to appreciate what goodness looks like. I mean, that's not, that's not the task and the challenge of parents. They, they just come by it naturally, and the task becomes training them toward righteousness. The problem we have today is parents don't teach their kids not to sin. And that's a whole nother series, isn't it? Neither does the modern church. Yes. You know, it's funny that you say that because... Um, you know, I, I, I work in education, and you know, fortunately, in a Christian school, so we do we do have the uh, the privilege of bringing God's word to bear in everything that we do—not just academics, but discipline and shepherding the hearts of children and all that. But um, but it's it's I, it, it's Christian people, even in their uh, approach to discipline issues or, or behavioral issues in their own children, in the context of school. Um, this very fundamental doctrine is what is not connecting in their thinking. It's, it's It's not connecting in their thinking. And so they're looking for reasons for the behavior of their children. They're trying to attach reasons to either that child who is provoking my child all the time, or the classroom environment that becomes too pressure-packed when they're doing times multiplication tests or whatever. The, the the playground, there's not enough monitoring on the playground. I mean, don't you know that my child's being bullied on the playground? In fact, at our school, um, by some, some accounts, um, our school is made up of probably 98% bullies. And everyone is... Everyone is under severe threat every day, all day long, K through 12. Um, because, but that, the source of that, I mean, I make light of that, but the source of that is that people are constantly looking for some explanation outside the individual, outside the person, outside the child. So we see this all the time, even in, even in grade school, it plays out. That's why I say an understanding of this, a really deep, thoroughgoing understanding of this, impacts everything. It impacts everything. Our thinking on this impacts the practical ways that we deal with something like training up a first grader to deal with conflict in a first grade classroom. It really goes down to that level. So you see this, this, uh, this continued argument from, from Pelagius that even though he would acknowledge that sin is a universal issue, it's a, it's a result of habits or imitation that's gradually formed, And and his last point is this, man cannot escape responsibility for his own concrete sinful activity, nor, here's the key, nor make an appeal to some previous act. So in the mind of Pelagius, for you and I, post-fall, to be able to make some excuse that we're sinful because of what Adam did, that's his thinking, it's kind of a little bit simplistic there, but... He he doesn't want anyone to have the freedom to make an appeal that my sinful actions are a result of the sin of someone else, namely Adam. What, what scripture? I mean, is he, in his argument, I'm sure there's probably, he uses scripture somewhere to back it up, but I'm just thinking of, you know, Romans 5, where he's talking about the first Adam and then the second Adam, and then, you know, Psalm 51, where it's in sin, you know, I was brought forth. I mean, where is, yeah, so. Well, I mean, he's he's pulling it from. Um, I mean, there's there's legalism, you know, that plays out in people's interpretation of Scripture all the time, and they would appeal to um, the, the obligations of moral conduct and the emphasis of that as the priority. Yes. So, but but we're going to talk about that Romans five passage in particular um, because there is there is a, a sort of an um, an interpretive. Argument that centers around the meaning of of certain things in that passage, and there is an element of of mystery in the Romans five passage that's there because you're you're starting you're, you're getting into a point a place where um, you can't it, it, it's not it's not intended the point of that passage is not intended to be some type of schematic you know some type of architectural drawing of how all in Adam sinned, and therefore, in Christ, the elect can be made righteous. It's not intended to be, okay, the, the, it, it happened this way and that way, and then you nail this bolt in and you screw this you know, nut in, and, you, and all of a sudden you've got substitutionary atonement for the original sin of Adam that passed on to us. I mean, it's, and so a lot of people try to really scrutinize the passage to a point where it, it, it's not going to make sense. But we'll talk about that in a little bit in just a minute. But you're right, there is a problem here in that you know, we can readily point to Scripture in numerous places uh, where the arguments that I just uh, outlined from Pelagius really kind of fall to the ground. So let me just highlight a few of them. Um, the first one I would say is that uh, man is without excuse. So the argument for, you know, Augustine would not make this argument. No one would make the argument that somehow, because all sinned in Adam, that man is not individually culpable. No one would say that that's, that gives me an out. And Romans 1 makes that very clear. No one, everyone, you know, man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Everyone is without excuse. That God has been made known to him, Right? Um, and so, er, no one has an excuse. So, Romans 1, 18 to 18-32, makes individual culpability for sin completely clear, unmistakable there. So, the argument for, against uh, a Pelagian view would not be that somehow we're off the hook because, you know, what can we do? I mean, my, my, own, my own kids could say that about me, right? I mean, I wouldn't be like this if it wasn't for my parents. You can take that argument from a current generation to the parents, to the grandparents. It's like, no, it's not my fault. And that's, that's against Scripture explicitly. So that wouldn't be the argument that someone who would want to argue against a Pelagian view would make. But to go further and to get into this issue of man's will, Scripture also makes it clear that man's will is dependent upon his nature. His nature affects his will. Our our nature affects the decisions that we make, right? It influences the decisions that we make. And you see this, for example, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where it talks about man before the nature of his heart uh, at the time before the flood. The nature of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. It's like this repeated idea of all the time, constantly, only, completely, totally evil. Or Jeremiah 17 9 that talks about the thoughts and intentions of the heart are utterly wicked, who can know it? And then, of course, Ephesians 2 1 through 3 talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins. So, so we, we have to understand that our will is influenced by our nature. And then to the point you made about Romans 5, Scripture would argue and Scripture would say that in Adam all sinned. That's the statement in Romans chapter 5. And that is sort of the the crux verse. Not the whole context per se, but that particular verse which says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, which that's easy to understand, right? Genesis chapter 3 see the the narrative play out there and there it is. They took the fruit and they ate. So sin entered into the world through one man. That's not complicated and that's not controversial. And death through sin. That's not particularly controversial. The curse brought about death. The the curse introduced entropy or decay, perpetual decay and the breakdown of creation and the breakdown of man and the dust you will return. So... So that's easy to understand. And then it says, So, through one man, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That statement is the controversial, if you will, statement. What does it mean that all sinned? Well, if you just take it from the perspective of the the Greek verb tense there, It is an aorist tense, that verb tense that says that all men send. And just to, to, I don't want to belabor this point, but the nature of the aorist tense itself, and that's why we need to be thankful that the Greek language is so precise, particularly in verb tenses. So it makes things much clearer than in other Languages, but the aorist tense here that's used, and the aorist tense is referred to as simple occurrence or summary occurrence, without regard for the amount of time taken to accomplish the action. This tense is often also often referred to as the punctiliar tense. Punctiliar, in the sense, means viewed as a single collective whole, a one point in time action, although it may actually take place over a period of time. In the indicative mood, the aorist tense denotes action that occurred in the past time, often translated like the English simple past tense. So, it spread to, death spread to all men, all, because all sinned. It happened. It, it happened. Well, and the nature of the argument itself in the larger part of the, the text there as well is this analogy between the first Adam and the second Adam, Christ. And so, if you, if you become too surgical in your interpretation here, you can sort of break things up and make them potentially mean a number of different things. Yeah. But the larger context is also making this analogy between the first Adam and the second Adam Christ, so if you want to argue against the the, the possibility or the reasonableness of all men sinning in Adam, then you 're going to have trouble with the overall analogy in which your imputed righteousness is not your own in fact the death and burial and resurrection of Christ that you are a partaker in. Paul himself said what? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The whole Christian concept, the whole Christian doctrine of us being in Christ is comprehensive in nature. We share in his sufferings. We partake in his crucifixion. Our sins, He was made sin on our behalf. Our sins were put on Him. So this this whole analogy is tied to first Adam, all sinned, second Adam, Christ, or the many sinned, the many will be made righteous in that analogy there. Louis Burkhoff uh, would say it this way, Adam sinned not only as the father of the human race, but also as the representative head of all his descendants. And therefore, the guilt of his sin is placed to their account, so that they are all liable to the punishment of death. It is primarily in that sense that Adam's sin is the sin of all. That is what Paul teaches us in Romans 5.12. Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death passed unto all men, for that all sinned. The last words can only mean that they all sinned in Adam. And sinned in such a way is to make them all liable to the punishment of death. It is not sin considered merely as pollution, but sin as guilt that carries punishment with it. God adjudges all men to be guilty sinners in Adam, just as he adjudges all believers to be righteous in Jesus Christ. That is what Paul means when he says, So then, as through one trespass, the judgment came unto all men to condemnation, even so through one act of righteousness, the free gift came unto all men to justification of life. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one shall the many be made righteous. Now, another point to make here in a scriptural argument against this Pelagian view, and I, I alluded to it before, is it's just this, this principle I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner merely because I sin. Understand that distinction? My sinful action is a result of my being a sinner by nature. I'm not a sinner by nature because I committed sins and that made me a sinner by nature. And you look at Psalm 51 and you see that there. Someone turned to Psalm 51.5. It's a really... Poignant verse about our being born into sin, conceived in sin. Behold, I was brought forth in sin my mother So I don't know how you can be more clear than that in terms of the residing sin nature. And when that when that's passed on. Another little side note, and just you can I'll refer you to it, but in the broader sense, this concept, this biblical concept. Uh, representative, representative group, or representative head is is common in scripture. Um, you see that. You see uh, you see God judging nations as a result of the sin of the few. You see God uh, offering uh, to relent His wrath as a result of finding one righteous person, ten righteous people. Right? You see these kinds of these kinds of ideas. Throughout Scripture, but in Hebrews chapter seven, you have to actually have this specific reference uh, in this discussion about the high priest Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, however you pronounce that. Um, but there is a statement in there in Hebrews chapter seven, and I don't have the reference specific reference here, but it talks about um, when Abraham went um, to Melchizedek um, and, and made sacrifices that it, it, it that it was as though Levi. Was making sacrifices too because Levi was in the loins of Abraham. So this this idea of of representative head is a common idea in God's word, a common idea and common principle in Scripture. But we sin because we're sinner. We sin because we're sinners. Not we don't sin just because we're not a sinner. Just because we sin is the point. The last point there. So let me kind of bring this kind of full circle. As I said. This Pelagian view, uh, well, one more thing about the Pelagian view. Pelagius would argue that it's possible for man, by virtue of his own discipline and will, to achieve perfection, moral perfection. In other words, not sin. That's right. So, in the practical sense, in the practical working out of life, it's possible because, again, if you think about his previous arguments, these foundational arguments, that if man is, is. capable by virtue of, of the disposition of his will and the absence of the principle of sin or the sin nature, then it's possible by active will, by active discipline, and a knowledge of what the good is versus what the bad is, <clears throat> has the ability to achieve moral perfection. Now, that, that was a bridge too far in the councils of the church and as I said, uh, in the Council of Carthage in 418 A.D., and then again in the Council of Ephesus in 431 A.D., um, his whole doctrinal position was condemned. He was condemned. Good. <laughs> Good. Uh, now, however, now there, there's, what, what's, what's emerged, though, out of that is uh, sort of a moderated strain of Pelagianism, and it's... And, It's often referred to as semi-Pelagianism. It's what leads to Arminianism. Maybe you've heard of Arminianism. But it it, it persists even today. Now, as I said at the very beginning, the issue of pride is is at the root of sin, sinful thinking and sinful action and sinful words. It's, It's a root motivator, a root impulse. Okay? And God is in opposition to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So for us to, to maintain humility before God and to not have our pride fed, does it not make sense for us to have a, doctrinal, a foundational doctrinal position that is oriented toward crushing pride, not feeding it? Well, the challenge here is we live in a day and time where the teachings of many churches and the beliefs of many professing Christians is more oriented toward a semi-Pelagian, man-centered, and even subtly man-exalting, pride-expanding foundation. And so, this issue, while in the discussion of it, kind of seems like you know some splitting of doctrinal or theological hairs, or do we really have to kind of strain this gnat? I mean, why are we talking about this? Can't we just talk about things that will help me you know, be a better employee in my workplace and be a better witness? Can't we just talk about how I can be a better husband or a better wife or a better friend or a better servant in the church? Why, why do we have to spend this time on this? Well, if pride is at the root, and you have a belief system that expands pride as opposed to crushing it, then you can receive all the teaching you want on how to be a better this or that, and you're still going to struggle under the burden of foundational beliefs that feed your pride. Is that what's behind her, so much of the, the, the thinking today that you're saved by the works that you do? Yeah, I, well, it, all, it always goes back to that, too. It always goes back to uh, a desire that, that we can save ourselves. That's ultimately what it goes back to. Even professing Christians struggle with legalism, with thinking on both sides of that equation. We struggle with a belief that if I just do this, this, and this, then God will love me more. All right? Or if I just do this, this, and this, and I don't do that, that, and that, then God won't be mad at me. So we 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 we, are, we reduce our thinking into these simplistic terms. Yes. Aren't we talking about trying to fix and maybe possibly in great error redeem the soul without any recognition of the Spirit man and the and Christ in us? Yes. Us in I mean I just see all this working out the soul, which we can only work out the soul through the Spirit. Right? We our our nature is we're all, we're. All, okay, well he's he's basically appealing to man's ability to to demonstrate godliness by his own by his own volition so he's he's just he's just appealing to man's man's ability it's just a, it's an appeal to but 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 let's let's bring it to i mean the pelagian view like i said takes this to an extreme that has been condemned and and most people especially when you outline it like that be like well that's that's great i mean no one thinks that they can Work their way to perfection. I mean, there are certain people that do. There are certain even even sects that believe this and all that. But, but in the main, the, the larger the larger um, I think the larger issue, doctrinally speaking, is not with full blown Pelagianism, if you will, but semi Pelagianism, a moderated strain of that. So let me just talk about that for just a moment. And this really comes to bear in the doctrine of salvation, how one uh, becomes saved. So let me give you some terms to kind of impress your friends with and feed your own pride that we're talking about crushing um, when you're having coffee and discussing theology. So the semi-Pelagian view on um, salvation, for example, would be what's called synergistic, meaning that salvation is accomplished as man and God cooperate. Divine grace and the human will work together for salvation to happen. Now, Pelagius would say that man can achieve perfection by virtue of his own will. He can achieve sinlessness by virtue of his own will because his will has not been corrupted by the fall. Semi-Pelagianism would say, no, there's a synergistic partnership at work. To even say that, it's like, Ugh. let's think about that. I'm, what I'm saying is, is that divine grace and the human will work together for salvation to happen. So it's almost like you know a handshake with God. God, come on, let's... Let's get together and work out this salvation thing for me. Can we do that? Can we agree on maybe a 50-50 partnership? That's right. On equal terms. That's right. It all goes back to that, that original uh, sin in the garden. So that would be a synergistic view. Uh, uh, the, the more Augustinian view would be a monergistic view that salvation is wholly the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. And mankind possesses no inclination toward the gospel in his natural state and needs divine grace to be enabled to believe. So you can see how there's a complete distinction there. When you start talking to people about, uh, about how they come to faith in Christ, and you press the matter of where we are in our fully sinful, unredeemed state, to the degree that we have no ability in and of ourselves. We are incapable of moving toward God. We are incapable of embracing the truth. We can't even see it because we're blind and we're dead, right? When When you press that point, it does rub up against the pride of many who believe that they took a step and God met them halfway. Now, I'm not making the case that anyone who has a semi-Pelagian or you might consider it an Arminian uh, viewpoint on how one comes to faith in Christ, I'm not trying to imply that everyone in that camp, if you will, is laden with pride, that they're just, you know, you you just get to know them and you'll soon find out that they are just the most prideful people ever. That's That's not the idea that I'm trying to put forward here. There are many people who would embrace this kind of viewpoint. They would embrace this synergistic kind of partnership. I move toward God, he moves toward me, and then he gives me the spirit and opens my eyes and and that kind of thing. Uh, They would have this synergistic viewpoint, and they're humble people, and they love God, and they desire to worship God in spirit and truth. And so I don't want to say that that, that it's just a a common, you know, there's going to be pride run amok if they believe this way. However, what I am trying to say, going back to what I was talking about at the very beginning, pride is a root issue for us. And so anything in our lives, whether it's beliefs or ways of thinking, whether it's relationships or associations and and work relationships and people we're around, anything in our lives that in any way feeds pride is dangerous. Dangerous to the soul, dangerous to Christian growth, dangerous and detrimental to sanctification. And so our beliefs about sin, as we're wrapping up this section on original sin, our understanding of sin and the extensive impact of sin on us is critically important, not just for us to understand what happened in Genesis chapter 3, but for us to consistently and faithfully and genuinely walk in humility before our God and to not have him be opposed to us in our pride. It's critically important. So God help us, right? God help us to not uh, not be so burdened by our sin that we become so mindful of our shortcomings that we're constantly trying to add works to our lives to give us some sense that we're pleasing God by our works. God save us from legalism, but also God save us from pride thinking that our works are somehow earning us special favor with God. We are just called to walk in humility, recognizing that I, I was dead And he made me alive. And now I'm just seeking to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. And for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Very simple, but not easy. Let's pray.